Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we're focusing on America and the Americans who fought in the Boer War. But first, what made Americans travel halfway around the world to fight for both the Boers and the British? The initial answer is obvious, given the Boers' attempts at forging independence from the British Empire, something the Americans had done 130 years before. I have been absorbed in interest in the Boer War wrote Theodore Roosevelt to his friend Cecil Spring Rice in 1899. He continued, The Boers are belated Cromwellians with many fine traits. They deeply and earnestly believe in their cause, and they attract the sympathy which always goes to the small nation. But it would be for the advantage of mankind to have English spoken south of the Zambezi, just as in New York. And as I've told one of my fellow Knickerbockers the other day, as we let the Eightlanders of old in here, I do not see why the same rule is not good enough in the Transvaal. Two years later, though, the former senator and now President Roosevelt wrote, I am not an Anglomaniac any more than I am an Anglophobe, but I am keenly alive to the friendly countenance England gave us in 1898. I have been uncomfortable about the Boer War, and notably in reference to certain details of the way in which it was brought on. But I have far too lively a knowledge of our national shortcomings to wish to say anything publicly that would hamper or excite feelings against a friendly nation for which I have a hearty admiration and respect. That contradiction was being played out across the USA. Leading newspapers sent their correspondence to the front. The war was debated in Congress and discussed in cabinet meetings. Private organizations sprang up to help one side or the other. A surprising number of Americans actually made their way to South Africa and joined the fight. And toy stores stocked up on two new games, one called Boer and Britain, and the other The War in South Africa. The U.S. government's position was delicate, and the American Consul General in the Transvaal, Charles E. Macram, was instructed to observe the most absolute neutrality. But as Churchill noted when he was a prisoner, his sympathies were plainly so much with the Transvaal government that he even found it difficult to discharge his diplomatic duties. Macram was soon replaced by Adelbert Hay, a 24-year-old son of the Secretary of State, whose pro-British views were in line with those of his government. Hay did his job well. In addition, the United States sold the British tens of thousands of tons of preserved meat, hay and oats, as well as horses, mules and oxen. Boers and their friends in America tried to prevent such sales, and the Chicago branch of the American Transvaal League and the Boer Legislative Committee of Philadelphia lodged formal protests with Washington. Although publishing legend and businessman William Randolph Hearst thought Britain should win because, as he put it, civilization and progress demand it, most American publishers and their newspapers were actually pro-Boer. For example, the man who gave us the Pulitzer Prize, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, sided with the Boers openly and favored American mediation. It even worked up a petition to the president urging this, which was signed by 19 bishops and archbishops, 104 out of the 442 members of Congress, 89 college presidents, 13 mayors of important cities, and many distinguished judges, editors, and businessmen. But the Americans were battling their own contradictions, for they were waging a colonial-style war of their own in the Philippines at the same time. William Jennings Bryan, for example, wrote, he would not sign the petition because of... Our refusal to recognize the rights of the Filipinos to self-government will embarrass us if we express sympathy with those in other lands who are struggling to follow the doctrines set forth in the Declaration of Independence. Andrew Carnegie felt the same way. 
When a group of schoolboys wrote a letter expressing their sympathy for President Kruger and his cause, the Philadelphia North American newspaper took up the idea and promoted it with such enthusiasm that it developed into a huge scroll signed by 29,000 schoolboys from New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and points in between. Girls, however, were excluded. The North American decided to send it to Kruger by special messenger. To go along with the scroll, a collection of newspaper clippings and pictures about the war were assembled and pasted into a large book packaged in a handsome, specially made leather case. James Francis Smith, a curly-haired 15-year-old boy from New York, was selected from among 2,000 messenger boys for his independence and character to deliver the scroll and the book personally to Kruger in Pretoria. James Smith reached Pretoria on May 29, 1900. Kruger was still there, but it was a sad day for the old president, the saddest he had yet experienced in his long life. He was preparing to flee, to leave behind him forever his sick wife, his children, and the capital of the country he had ruled for so many years. The bayonets of the invader were glistening on his country's doorstep, and his government was in the process of packing up. Already the archives, the gold from the mint, and all of the movable paraphernalia of government had been loaded on trains for the flight. Yet on that very troubled and busy day, Kruger took time to see James. When the big, beautifully bound book of clippings was presented to him, Kruger was visibly disappointed at the discovery that it was not, as he had thought, a barbel. But he thanked Jimmy graciously anyway. There was a natural tendency for some Americans to want to help the Boers in their struggle. The Americans on both sides fought as soldiers in the armies, receiving the same pay as those around them. They were not mercenaries in the strict sense of the term, but many were professional looters. Some fought for the British in what can only be called a twisted sense of loyalty, with some Southerners who felt betrayed by the Civil War and its aftermath, travelling to South Africa fighting for the British. Others were merely caught in a region after heading to the country because of the gold and diamond discoveries of the previous decades, seeking their fortune in Johannesburg and Kimberley, then throwing in their lot with the British. It was an individual decision, as the United States government had decided to stay out of the war. Some Americans harboured hatred for the British imperialism, such as John Blake and the Irish Americans. Others were adventurous and liberty-loving citizens, represented by John Hassel and the American Scouts. Those with entrepreneurial interests within the Transvaal and Orange Free State, some inadvertently drawn into the conflict, as displayed by engineer George Labram, who built armaments for Cecil John Rhodes while besieged in Kimberley, some fostered humanitarian and moral support for the Boers based on the British actions, and those who supported the British monarchy, such as Major Frederick Russell Burnham. Many Irish Americans supported the Boers as they later did the Irish Republican Army, which sought independence for Northern Ireland. Most of the men, as I've said, came from military backgrounds, and many from the western frontier of the United States. Many of these men's passions for adventure derived from the desire to explore and expand unknown territories. They represented a dying breed as the United States reached the west coast and into the last Indian territories. Their expertise in prospecting and mining brought them to their last frontier on the African continent, and when war began, they were regarded as highly skilled trackers, snipers, and soldiers. What the war did, however, was underscore a contradiction in U.S. foreign policy. Washington was finding it extremely difficult, remaining indifferent to the wars among the European powers at the turn of the century. Many of its citizens were newly arrived of first-generation Americans who brought their internecine quarrels with them. 
the English, Scots, Irish, Scandinavians, Italians, Russians, Germans. As we've heard, the Transvaal laws were onerous and prohibited an easy transfer of voting rights to the Eightlanders. When the war began, Americans who'd been engineers or blasters, riggers and equipment operators on the mines joined the British colonial forces, sometimes merely on the basis of language, as Roosevelt had intimated. Probably the most famous American who fought for the British was Major Frederick Russell Burnham, who he met in episode 37, helping the British around Johannesburg. British weakness and reconnaissance was recognised early in the war and they required experienced field craftsmen. Burnham was brought to South Africa to correct the fault and performed useful service in the taking of Johannesburg and Pretoria. He was born on a Dakota Sioux Indian reservation in Minnesota, where he learned the ways of American Indians as a boy. By the age of 14, he had found his way to California, while also learning scouting from some of the last of the cowboys and frontiersmen of the American Southwest. Burnham had little formal education. He never finished high school, for example. After moving to the Arizona Territory in the early 1880s, he was drawn into the Pleasant Valley War, a feud between families of ranchers and sheepherders, which has spawned hundreds of books and movies. He survived that, and later worked as a civilian tracker for the United States Army in the Apache Wars. Feeling the need for new adventures, Burnham, who was married by then, took his family to southern Africa in 1893, seeing Cecil Rhodes's Cape to Cairo railway project as the next undeveloped frontier. He served in the Indebele War and then headed off to Skagway in Alaska upon hearing of the gold finds there. That's where he received a telegram from the new British Commander-in-Chief Lord Roberts asking him to become Chief of Scouts and to head back to South Africa. Some of his exploits are legendary, such as when he attempted to discover the conditions inside General Cronier's lager at Partebag by floating down the Moda River under a box. He learned little, but the action alone certified him as a British hero. Later, Burnham was on his way eastwards from Bloemfontein when he stumbled on General Christian de Bet's force ready to ambush Brigadier General Broadwood's column at Sanna's Post. He attempted to give the alarm but was captured and could only look on as British soldiers were taken prisoner and guns and wagons fell into Boer hands. Burnham managed to escape from de Wet's wagon train and made his way back to headquarters. As the British approached Johannesburg, the large quantity of railway rolling stock was seen as an important potential prize, both to deny its future use to the Boers and to supplement the British supply capability. Burnham and a black unnamed soldier crept behind the enemy lines to blow up the railway lines and prevent the removal of the wagons. After the fall of Pretoria in June 1900, it was assumed that Burnham's work was over and he left South Africa. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. After his death in 1947, a mountain beside Mount Baden-Powell in California was formally named Mount Burnham. That was in 1951. Another unusual member of the Americans involved in the Boer War was journalist Richard Harding Davis, who is known as the first American war correspondent to cover the Spanish-American War, as well as the Second Boer War. He also went on to cover the First World War II. Davis was one of the few journalists who covered the war firsthand from both the British and Boer perspectives, and published a book called With Both Armies in 1900. What is extraordinary about him was his ability to display levels of objectivity and dispassion when most around him were writing purple prose about the war. He left a legacy of journalistic excellence, ethics and reporting skill that still stands as an example for today's news industry, which by all accounts is sorely needed. 
Just as an aside, Richard Harding Davis was also known as the Gibson Guy. His handsome, clean-shaven features were the model for the young gentleman escorting Charles Dana Gibson's Gibson Girls and started the fad that eventually eliminated facial hair from millions of American male faces. He died of a heart attack aged 52 while working at his typewriter. A great many of the volunteers on the Boers' side were Irish and Irish-Americans, and one might suppose that they and the Boers had little in common. But Roland Schickeling, a young Boer serving with a commando, observed that while the German and Dutch volunteers were closer in blood, they seemed out of place in the Transvaal army, while the Irish blended in so well that you could not pick Patrick out of a herd of the wildest Boers, he said. In September 1899, an Irish brigade was mustered into the Transvaal Army, largely composed of Irish and Irish-Americans recruited from the region's mines and commanded by self-styled American Colonel John Y. Fillmore Blake. He was an 1880 graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and had risen to the rank of captain during previous active service experience as a U.S. cavalry officer on the plains during the Indian Wars. While opinions varied, A correspondent of the Times of London, embedded with the Boer army, described the brigade as comprising some of the worst sweepings of Johannesburg led by an American adventurer called Colonel Blake. The rank of colonel did not exist in the Boer army, making his position even more incredulous. Their avowed object was to loot, and that is probably all they would be good for, wrote the correspondent. The brigade was augmented by the so-called Chicago Ambulance Corps, raised among Irish-Americans by Fine Gael, who landed about 50 strong at Beira in Mozambique in April 1900. The Portuguese authorities allowed them to entrain for the Transvaal, where they divested themselves of their medical guise, armed themselves, and under a Captain Patrick O'Connor, fell in with the Irish brigade, helping to swell its ranks. The ambulance service itself, including five doctors and two nurses, accompanied the corps and provided professional support for its volunteers as well as for Boer commanders in general. There was also the Irish Brigade, or Wreckers Corps, which fought from Ladysmith to Pretoria in about 20 engagements, incurring 18 dead and 70 wounded, including their commander. Many of these were Americans. After Colonel Blake was wounded, Major John McBride, an Irishman, took command and led the brigade until December 1900, when they retreated into Mozambique with most of the Transvaal forces, and at that stage, many of the Americans then left Africa. But Blake, apparently, fought on in the guerrilla war that dragged through to 1902, speaking Afrikaans and adopting the Afrikaner mold, including growing a huge flowing beard. Another character was Pennsylvanian John H. King, a miner-turned-adventurer. King fought for the Boers and was nicknamed Dynamite Dick for his expertise in blowing up trains and bridges and earned a reputation for bravery as well. When he and another man retrieved a seriously wounded Boer comrade under heavy fire at the Battle of Valkrans. The rescued Boer was none other than Alec Brandt, the son of Johannes Henrikus Brandt, a former president of the Orange Free State. However, there was a dark side to King's character. You see, King fought at Spionkop in January 1900, where he captured an old American friend who had joined the British side. According to a report by the New York World, King and his American compatriot had a brief conversation, shook hands, and then King shot his unnamed friend dead. There are other anecdotes from participants that show that Americans on each side took pains to identify and target their fellow countrymen on the other side. 
All in all, there may have been as many as 300 Americans in the Boer forces during the war, while estimates of American participants on the British side run into several thousand. Arthur Conan Doyle, the author, who was also in South Africa at the time, subsequently writing a definitive history of the war, reported that an entire squadron of Roberts's horse was composed of Texas cowboys. Many of them came to South Africa tending the thousands of horses and mules shipped from America for the British Army and then stayed on to soldier in colonial regiments. Roberts's horse was formed in January 1900 as one of the many colonial volunteer units raised particularly for the war. Trooper Leonard Chadwick was elected by his comrades as the most distinguished soldier in a South African colonial unit and was accordingly awarded one of the commemorative scarves knitted by Queen Victoria. He was an American. It must have come as some surprise that the most outstanding colonial soldier fighting on the British side for South African colonials was actually an American. How strange is history. Chadwick is what you would call a professional soldier. He had already won the Congressional Medal of Honor while serving in the United States Navy during the Spanish-American War. He received the Distinguished Conduct Medal for his bravery at part of the bag and then a mention on dispatches by Lord Roberts on 2nd April 1901. Another veteran of the U.S. Navy and Spanish-American War who served with the British colonial forces was William Thompson, who with two unnamed colleagues attempted to make off with a piece of the Boers' heavy artillery. While it was in action at Ladysmith, this didn't end well. They were taken prisoner by the Boers. And two American railway engineers, Louis Irving Seymour and Joseph Clement, joined the Railway Pioneer Regiment in Cape Town in October 1899. Major Seymour and Lieutenant Clement were both killed in June 1900 while defending a railway bridge they were constructing across the Sand River in the Orange Free State. Two more Americans who died fighting for the British in South Africa. Just to add a sense of macabre to this story, Seymour was shot dead by an American sharpshooter serving with Hassel's American scouts who were fighting for the Boers. Americans killing Americans in an African war. Who would have thought? Well, that's it for this week. I'll have a few more strange tales about Americans who fought in the Boer War for you next week, including a remarkable engineer we've met already who lost his head due to a direct hit by a Boer shell while he was dressing for dinner in Kimberley, Mr. Labrom. And as we approach the end of February, Christian de Vette is still stuck in the Northern Cape, and we'll hear how he makes it back to safety in the Free State by the skin of his teeth. There's also the small matter of Louis Boerter's wife, who sent a letter to her husband asking him to meet with Lord Kitchener to discuss peace. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes, and you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham, or send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> En zonder gedaan langs die mooie rivierse val, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die oud